नमो भगवते वासुदेवाय ओम नमो भगवते वासुदेवाय ओम नमो भगवते वासुदेवाय ओम ज्ञानतेमेंदशाजनाजनाशलाकायाक्षुरुन्मीनिसंजेनातस्मैश्रीगुरुवेनमहाम्मैस्पिरिचुअलमास्टरओपन्मैस्वयं When will Srila Rupa Goswami Prabhupada, who was established within this material world, the mission to fulfill the desire of Lord Chaitanya, give me shelter under his lotus feet? Vansha kalpa tarubhyasya kripa sindhubhya evacha patitanam pavanebhyo vaishnavebhyo namo namaha. I offer my respectful obeisances unto the Vaishnav devotees of the Lord. They are just like desire trees and can fulfill the desires of everyone. And they are full of compassion for the fallen conditioned souls. जय श्री कृष्ण चैतन्य प्रभु नित्यानंद श्री द्वैत गधाधार शिवासादि गौरभक्तवृंद आई ऑफर माय रिस्पेक्टफुल ओबेसेंसेस अनटु श्री चैतन्य महाप्रभु लॉर्ड नित्यानंद श्री द्वैत गधाधार पंडित श्रीवास्थाकोर एंड ऑल द डिवोटीज ऑफ लॉर्ड चैतन्य हरे कृष्णा हरे कृष्णा 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 हरे 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 राम हरे राम 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 हरे हरे So today is Tuesday, June 1st, 2021, and we are reading from Srimad Bhagavatam Canto 1, Creation, Chapter 7, 7, The Son of Drona Punished, Text 43. Uvacha kasa hanti asya Vandhananyam sati मुच्यतम मुच्यतमेशा ब्रह्मनो नितराम गुरु उवचा कसहंती च आशा वंदनानन्यनम सति उच्यता Brahmano nitaram guru translation Uvacha said cha and asahanti being unbearable for her asha his bandana being bound anyananam bringing him sati the devoted 
Muchatam, muchatam. Just get him released. Esaha. This. Brahmana. Abramana. Nitaram. Our. Guru. Teacher. Translation and purport by His Divine Grace A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Srila Prabhupada. She could not tolerate Ashwatthama's being bound by ropes, and being a devoted lady, she said, Release him, release him, for he is a Brahmana, our spiritual master. Purport. As soon as Ashwatthama was brought before Draupadi, she thought it intolerable that a Brahmana should be arrested like a culprit and brought before her in that condition especially when the brahmana happened to be a teacher's son. Arjuna arrested Ashvatthama, knowing perfectly well that he was the son of Dronacharya. Krishna also knew him to be so, but both of them condemned the murderer without consideration of his being the son of a brahmana. According to revealed scriptures, a teacher or spiritual master is liable to be rejected if he proves himself unworthy of the position of a guru or spiritual master. A guru is called also an acharya, or a person who has personally assimilated all the essence of shastras and helped, has helped their disciples to adopt the ways. Ashwatthama failed to discharge the duties of a brahmana or teacher, and therefore he was liable to be rejected from the exalted position of a brahmana. On this consideration, both Lord Sri Krishna and Arjuna were right in condemning Ashwatthama. But to a good lady like Draupadi, the matter was considered not from the angle of Shastric vision, but as a matter of custom. By custom, Asvatama was offered the same respect as offered to his father. It was so because generally people accept the son of a Brahmana as a real Brahmana, by sentiment only. Factually, the matter is different. A Brahmana is accepted on the merit of qualification and not on the merit of simply being the son of a Brahmana. But in, despite, in spite of all this, Draupadi desired that Ashwatthama be at once released, and it was all the same a good sentiment for her. This means that a devotee of the Lord can tolerate all sorts of tribulation personally, but still such devotees are never unkind to others, even to the enemy. These are the characteristics of one who is a pure devotee of the Lord. So let's just recap what's happening at, to this, you know, in this story to this point. So after the battle of Kurukshetra, Ashvatthama, the son of Dronacharya, beheaded the five sons of Draupadi while they were sleeping, thinking his master Duryodhana would be pleased. He was not. So Draupadi was grieving the loss of her children, and Arjuna promised her the head of whoever did this to pacify her. When Ashvatthama saw Arjuna coming, he ran. When he could not run anymore because his horses were too tired, out of great fear, he set off the great nuclear weapon, the Brahmastra. Krishna then instructed Arjuna to release his own Brahmastra to counteract the first one. And when both began to cause destruction, Arjuna was able to retract both. He then caught, captured Ashwatthama and brought him back to the military camp for retribution. And it said that Arjuna was hesitant to kill Ashwatthama, even though he promised Draupadi, and Krishna instructed him to do so. So Krishna laid out the reasons for his death. He said, he's killed innocent boys in his sleep, and a person who knows the principles of religion does not kill an enemy who is careless, intoxicated, insane, asleep, 
afraid or devoid of their chariot. Nor do they kill a boy, a woman, a foolish creature, or a surrendered soul. Ashatama then released a Brahmastra, and it said, A cruel and wretched person who maintains their existence at the cost of others' lives deserves to be killed for their own well-being. Otherwise, they will go down by their own actions. And yet, in today's verse, Draupadi calls for his release. And no one would blame her for wanting to, you know, for wanting what what Arjuna had originally promised. He said that, I will bring to you the head of that Brahmana after beheading him with arrows from my Gandiva bow. I shall then wipe the tears from your eyes and pacify you. Then, after burning your son's bodies, you can take your bath standing on his head. So this is what Arjuna promised, and even he had difficulty following through, right? Instead of killing him immediately, he bound him and brought him to the camp. And at that moment, when Draupadi sees Ashwatthama bound up like that, you know, she thinks, oh, this is not right. Release him. You know, she feels, she exhibits two very important quality, qualities that we want to see in devotees, compassion and forgiveness. So she already knows, she knows what Ashwatthama has done to her, right? He, he murdered her innocent children while they were sleeping. And there's not really any more cowardly action than that of, um, you know, someone killing children in their sleep. And there's no greater pain for a parent to endure than this kind of crime, to have their children murdered, all of their children murdered like this. And still, she forgives him and shows him compassion instead. So what does this word compassion mean? What do you guys think? What are some things that come to mind when you hear compassion? Having empathy. Anything else come to mind? So, and having empathy means feeling for another person. Compassion takes it a step further in actually acting on those feelings. So, compassion is is, um, defined as sympathetic pity and concern for the sufferings or misfortunes of others. It actually literally means to suffer together. Like we hear this term, we're all in this together. Well, we are all in this material world together, and we're all suffering together. We all have different levels of suffering, but we're all suffering together. Um, compassion will motivate people to go out of their way um, to help the physical, mental, and emotional pains of another and even of themselves. Um, It's regarded as having sensitivity, and that's another emotional aspect of suffering, right? Like, I'm sensitive to the um, suffering or what what will hurt someone else, what words I can say that can cause pain or distress. And the opposite of compassion is indifferent or cold-hearted, not words that we would generally associate with a devotee to be cold-hearted or indifferent. Draupadi is never cold-hearted or indifferent. So what does compassion mean for a devotee? In terms of being a devotee, what does it mean to be compassionate? Being vegetarian, so having compassion towards animals and not killing them for our own sustenance. Any other thoughts? 
So in the Bhagavad Gita chapter 12, Krishna actually describes the qualities of one who is dear to him. And I pulled out the phrases that I kind of thought associated with compassion. So in 12, 13, 14, chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, Krishna says, one who is dear to him is a kind friend to all living entities, right? So not murdering animals for sustenance, um, not murdering other people. In text 15, he says, one by whom no one is put into difficulty. So a devotee doesn't want to cause difficulty or any additional suffering or harm to anyone else. In 17, it says, they neither rejoice nor grieve, neither lament nor desire. Um, so whatever happens, you know, they're kind of equanimous to it. Um, they don't excessively lament or grieve the losses or desires that haven't been fulfilled. In 18 and 19, it says, who is equal to friends and enemies. So in this case, Draupadi is exhibiting all of these qualities, right? She's, she's lost her children, but she's not letting that grief overwhelm her and cause her to make rash decisions. That's exhibiting compassion. And she's equal to friends and enemies. In this particular instance, Ashwatthama is playing the role of her enemy. You know, she, he killed his her children, and she's still feeling the same level of compassion towards him as um, she would a friend. And Srila Prabhupada says, "We are in the business of compassion of, distribu- of distributing Lord Chaitanya's mercy." Did this in a room conversation, August 12, 1976. So this is what, as devotees, we are we do. We're in the business of compassion. We chant that prayer every morning, right? Vancha kalpa tarubya kripa sindubya vacha patitanam pavanebhyo vaishnavebhyo namonamaha. So a devotee, is a Vaishnav, is one who has compassion for the fallen conditioned souls. In um, Bhagavad Gita 18.54, says, One who is thus transcendentally situated at once realizes the supreme Brahman and becomes fully joyful. They never lament or desire to have anything. They are equally disposed towards every living entity. In that state, they attain pure devotional service unto me. Prabhupada describes this as the Brahma-Bhuta stage. It's uh, one of the stages of self-realization. In some ways, it's the initial stage, right? Just coming to the point of compassion to all, thinking of everyone as equal, in sharing the qualities of God, right? Having that level of compassion for everyone equally, that's what God does, the Supreme does. So what we have to do is determine what is compassion and what is not compassion. And that's what they're making the decision of in this, verse in this point in the story are they're trying to decide is it compassionate to let Ashwatthama live or is it compassionate to kill him and it reminds me of a discussion I was having I've mentioned this before both my brothers are new parents so a new aunt this year twice my brother had a son last summer and my other brother had a daughter earlier this year and we were discussing discipline and routine right this, not discipline in the sense of reward and punish, punishment, but discipline in, of being disciplined um, 
in action. So we're saying that it's really important to establish that level of discipline with with babies, with infants, with kids, because it helps establish boundaries and it helps them feel secure and safe. And there's a routine, so they know what to expect. And it helps with expectations. It helps with, you know, all sorts of things. And then, of course, as parents and caregivers, if you're strict, especially with things like bedtimes, then you actually have more time to yourself if you have that discipline to make sure you put your child to bed at the same time, um, make sure they're getting a certain amount of sleep every day. Sometimes, though, it can be like, oh, my God, this child looks so cute. Look at them playing, and they just want to play, and then they may have a little tantrum when you try to take them and put them in bed. And sometimes we may think, oh, well, let just them let them play longer. What harm is it? We feel like that could be compassionate towards them, right? Like they're just playing, let them enjoy a little bit longer, let us enjoy watching them play. But then we can see that if a child doesn't have enough sleep, they become extremely grumpy. Sleep, especially the infant age, you know, the first year, couple of years, I mean, all the way, honestly, all the way until teenager years, sleep is extremely important for growth and development. You know, that's when a lot of growth happens. That's when brain development happens. Um, That's when memories are set into stone is during sleep. Um, It's how we learn, actually. When we learn things, if we don't get enough sleep the night before we learn something, or if we don't get enough sleep the night after, it's hard for that, what we've just learned, to kind of uh, incorporate into our knowledge. So it's really important to have that discipline, right? And as parents and caregivers, we have to be the ones, as the adults, right, we have to be the ones to do that. So the key is knowing what is true compassion and what is not. And when we look at the Bhagavad Gita, when we read the Bhagavad Gita, the whole premise of Arjun's dilemma is based on his compassion for his kin, the people on the other side, Dronacharya, his teacher from childhood, is on the other side, his grandfather, his great-grandfather, you know, his cousins. Um, and so he was feeling extremely compassionate. And he was like, I can't fight them. You know, that's, that's going to be hard. Like, it's a lose-lose situation. If I win, they're still dead. And if they win, I'm, you know, we're dead on this side. This is not going to be a battle that's going to have a good outcome. So he has so much doubt. And the whole entire Bhagavad Gita is... Krishna teaching him what is actually true compassion. In Bhagavad Gita 2.1, the purport, Srila Prabhupada says, compassion for the eternal soul is self-realization. Compassion for the dress of a drowning man is senseless. So we have to see, like, what exactly are we being compassionate towards? Um, Prabhupada often gives the example, like, if you save a drowning man, yeah, you or you save the clothes of the drowning man, the man is still going to drown. You save the clothes, what good is that, right? So we want to save the entire person. That includes the soul. We also have to be very mindful and conscious of where the person is at materially. If a person's starving, and they have no, like, um, in the near future, they don't see anywhere that they're going to get any food. They may be homeless. To sit there and tell them, well, you're not the soul and your spiritual, you know, being, and you're not this body, so you're not really hungry. Your body is hungry, but you're not. 
it's not going to mean anything to them. You know, we talked about sleep being important for learning, but so is nutrition and nourishment. So if a person's hungry, they're not going to take that into account. But if we first feed them, and then they're a little bit more open to hearing, then we can maybe have a conversation and see what they already believe and where, you know, where we can come together on our beliefs and take it further instead of just hounding them with this is who you are, you know, without compassion. Um, I think there's a famous quote that's um, people don't know, uh, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. I believe uh, former President Teddy Roosevelt said that. And it's true. I find that over and over again, even in my dealings with people, you know, as I educate people on what is health, how to take care of our bodies, I can tell them all of that, but they don't care until they know that I care. Right? So first I have to establish that I care for this person and I'm not just telling them what to do because of my ego. So we have to see where a person's at. And the beauty of our philosophy is that we can feed them prasadam or sanctified food, food that we first offered to God. And then once God eats, the food becomes sanctified or holy, and then we can serve that food um, to people that are hungry. Right? And even if we don't say a single word, the food itself can help purify, because it's sanctified food, can help purify the person's consciousness. And make them more open to hearing about talks about God. So, you know, we have to be really aware of where a person's at. And that's also part of compassion. You know, where, where is this person? Am I, being in, if I'm, am I being sensitive to their needs or am I being insensitive? Am I being indifferent or cold-hearted? You know, um, sometimes we use some of our spiritual knowledge for something that's called spiritual bypassing. And I've talked about this before. It's where we use our spiritual knowledge to negate a person's experience. And sometimes we do that to ourselves to negate our own experiences. So we may not um, face what we're feeling because we think, oh, we shouldn't feel this way. We shouldn't feel this pain. Um, There's a, a saying that I also like to say is that pain and discomfort in this material world is is necessary. It's there. We can't do anything about it. But suffering is optional. And suffering just means it's a state of mind. You know, how are we reacting to the external stimuli of pain and discomfort? Um, But to say, oh, well, I shouldn't suffer. I shouldn't feel this level of pain and comfort. It's negating what you're experiencing. So first, to acknowledge what you're experiencing is super important. And then you can say, okay, why am I experiencing this? Why do I feel this way? What's brought this into being? And then you can work on, work through those feelings to end, you know, the the reactions that you're having to this external stimuli. Um, so then that brings us to Bhagavad Gita chapter 16, 1, 3. It says, compassion for all living entities, forgiveness. These transcendental qualities belong to godly persons endowed with divine nature. So that brings us to forgiveness. This is the other thing that Draupadi exhibits in this pastime. Right? She's saying, release him. So in some ways, she's forgiving him for the sin of killing her own children. 
So then that brings us to what is forgiveness? You guys have any thoughts about what forgiveness brings to mind? Sorry. It can be difficult to do. Forgiveness is more for yourself than the other person. That's absolutely correct. So forgiveness is um, stopping the feeling of anger or resentment towards someone for an offense, flaw, or mistake. It's intentional and voluntary. Um, It's usually done by someone who may initially feel victimized, and they undergo and change in feelings of, of attitude regarding a given offense. It overcomes negative emotions such as resentment and vengeance. So Jack Cornfield is another person that's really big in personal development. And he says it's the capacity to let go, to release the suffering, the sorrows, the burdens of the pains and betrayals of the past. It's instead to choose the mystery of love. And it shifts us from the small, separate sense of ourselves to a capacity to renew, to let go, to live in love. It's also important to understand what forgiveness is not, because sometimes we have a hard time forgiving because we think of things like, well, it means letting someone off the hook. It means forgetting what they've done and letting them betray us again, possibly in the future. So forgiveness does not gloss over or deny the seriousness of an offense. It doesn't mean forgetting um, we don't want to forget sometimes so that we can protect ourselves and uh, never let this happen again. It does not mean condoning or excusing of offenses. And it actually doesn't obligate you to reconcile with the person who harmed you. As you said, it's not about them. It's about you letting go of the feelings, the emotions surrounding the person's actions. And it doesn't release anyone from legal accountability. You can still forgive someone and stand up for justice and say, you know, this is not going to happen again. You're not going to do this to anyone else. But you can still forgive that person and have those same sentiments. And forgiveness, as you said, is it's complicated. It's not sentimental. It's not quick. It's a deep process. It's It's taking a lot of looking internally, like what is... Why do I feel this way? What caused, you know, what exactly am I feeling? As I mentioned before, we have to honor ourselves to feel what we're feeling, right? Is it grief? Is it anger? Is it hurt? Is it fear? Is it all of it? You know, what exactly are we feeling and how, you know, why are we feeling that? Why does a certain person's actions bring out certain feelings in us? So when you do forgive someone, it brings you peace of mind. It frees you from corrosive anger. Um, You can let go of deeply held negative feelings. And it doesn't necessarily require positive feelings towards the offender. You don't have to feel good towards the offender. It's just that you've let go of the negative. If you can take it one step further and, you know, love them and and wish them well, that's even better, but it's not necessary in the process of forgiveness. 
It empowers one to recognize the pain they suffered without letting that pain define them. So it enables you to heal. When you can let go, you can move on and not let that pain keep hindering you and keep keep holding you back. I've heard, you know, to hold a grudge against someone is like drinking poison yourself and expecting the other person to die because of it. It doesn't work like that. You know, if I'm drinking the poison, I'm suffering myself, I'm hurting myself, and the other person may be off enjoying a vacation in Hawaii, and I'm sitting there having all these negative thoughts about them, and they may not even give it a second thought. You know, I've heard this story said, I wonder if I should even say it. Um, so it was by my spiritual master, Tamal Krishna Goswami, um, and he was talking to um, one of his god sisters, and his god sister had said, you know, you said this to me 20 plus years ago, and it caused me so much pain and hurt, and he felt really bad, and he's like, you know, I'm so sorry that I, that I caused you that level of pain, and I'm also sorry that I didn't know that I had done that. You know, you've been holding on to this for 20-something years, and I didn't even know about it. You know, like, he didn't give it a second thought. He wasn't thinking about it at all. And she was, right? And so it's, that's how it is. When we have this anger and resentment for someone, we hold on to this. And the other person may not even know it. You know, it could be a big offense. It could be a small offense. Um, there's another famous story about two ex-prisoners of war. And one says to the other, have you forgiven your captors yet? And the other says, no, I will never forgive them. And the first one says, well, they still have you in prison, don't they? Because they're still in control of that negative emotion. Um, Jack Cornfield goes on to say, without forgiveness, life would be unbearable. It's hard to imagine a world without forgiveness because we'd be chained to the suffering of the past and have only to repeat it over and over again. There'd be no release. So again, forgiveness is for ourselves to let go of that action, that betrayal, the expectation that was not met. In Buddhism, they describe 12 steps to forgiveness. The first step is to understand what forgiveness is and what is not. We've kind of discussed that. Sense the suffering. The second step is to sense the suffering in yourself. And we talked about, you know, internal reflection. Why are you still, why are we still holding on to this pain? Um, are we having a hard time forgiving ourselves for reacting a certain way? Or are we having a, you know, a hard time forgiving the other person for doing their activity because they haven't copped up to their uh, crime, so to speak. You know, a lot of times when you talk to a victim of a crime, forgiveness is hard because part of that is they felt like, man, I should have done this. I should have fought back. I should have fought harder. I should have ran away. They have all these scenarios in their head of what they should have done. And so they have a hard time forgiving them their own selves. So when you start to look at what exactly is surrounding this lack of forgiveness, you can understand what the cause of suffering is and start to let go of that. Um, you can reflect on, step three is reflect on the benefits of having a loving heart. 
And in the Bhagavad Gita, this is mentioned a lot, right? Friends to all, seeing everyone equally, having love and compassion for everyone. Um, and that you want to step forward is to discover that it's not necessary to be loyal to your suffering. Sometimes we hold on to the pains of the past because in some ways we let it define us. And it does define who we are in the sense of how we got to where we are, but it doesn't determine our future unless we let it. So if we leave the past in the rearview mirror and focus what's ahead, it's, you know, we, we are able to move forward easier. A lot of us just tend to be loyal to our suffering and letting it define us. So saying that it's not going to define us is to choose to live in joy. Understanding that forgiveness is a process, and we've discussed this um, previously. Step six is to set your intention. And this is really important because if you don't have an intention to forgive, it's it's not in your thought process. You're, you're not, you're not um, seeking it out. So it's important to have intentions, right? Like I'm going to work on forgiving this person or forgiving myself for certain activities. So then you can start to do all the other steps if you have that intention. Step eight is start with easiest things, right? Whatever opens your heart. Um, Sometimes it's like I can relate this to, because I have a dog and a cat and a bird, and sometimes it's just, you know, the dog's going to make mistakes, my puppy's going to make mistakes. But the way she looks at me sometimes with her little puppy dog eyes, it's just, it's hard to stay mad at her. It's easy to forgive her, right? It opens my heart out to love. Then you can work your way up with that same kind of feelings to maybe someone who's committed a smaller offense towards you, right? You still have love for them, and you focus on the love that you feel. And then you work your way up to an even bigger offense. And if you start doing it that way, it helps to open up your heart more and more. And open, having an open heart filled with love is also key for forgiveness. Step nine is be willing to grieve. Um, you know, this again is talking about the bargaining loss, fear, anger, We want to make sure we're dealing with our emotions. Forgiveness includes all the dimensions of our lives. It's work of the body, work of the emotions, work of the mind. And it's interpersonal work done through relationships. So, you know, forgiveness becomes a big part of our health, too, because when we don't forgive, it can, it's like I said, it's like drinking poison. And there is a physical toll that holding a grudge can have on our bodies and on our health. Forgiveness involves perspective, right? We're all in this life together. We all have our dramas. So someone may have said something to you because of the issues that they're dealing with that have nothing to do with you, but it caused some level of pain or triggered something in you, right? But again, they, that may not have been their intention and, you know, they may be going through their own things, even if it was their intention to hurt you. You know, it said hurt people hurt people. Right. If people are not hurt, they're not likely to hurt other people. So having that perspective, it's 
it's exhibiting passion, and this is where forgiveness and compassion intertwine, is you're looking at, you know, what is the other person going through? What are their, you know, pain and suffering points? And you start to have a better understanding of why they did what they did. And the thing, other key to forgiveness <clears throat> is forgiving yourself, and I've kind of touched on this, and also being compassionate towards ourselves. So we want to make sure that we are looking at, you know, why are we having a hard time forgiving someone? Maybe we can't forgive something in our own actions with the interaction with that person. Um, we may have some shame associated with the interaction with that person. And at the same time, it's hard to forgive ourselves if we can't exhibit compassion and forgiveness for others. So it's kind of a dual process that we have to work on both things <clears throat> at the same time. So how do we tie this into our Krishna consciousness, our everyday lives, right? Well, one of the big things that we want to do is make sure we're opening our heart and when we chant japa, this is our silent mantra meditation, one of the prayers is, you know, Krishna, open my heart. You know, allow me to feel love. And the more love you feel, it, the easier it becomes to feel compassion and for forgiveness towards others. So our japa, our silent mantra, or it's not silent, but it's to ourselves, our mantra meditation becomes extremely important in our process of forgiveness. Also important is reading and listening to stories about forgiveness. We can understand and see how it is to forgive someone and practice it. <clears throat> so in this case, we're, we're seeing Dropadi and how she's reacting to this heinous crime that was com committed against her. You know, caused her great, great pain, great loss. She's grieving, and yet she still has the capacity to forgive despite all of that. And then if we work on serving others with compassion and love, and we talked about, you know, prashadam distribution, right? Giving people sanctified food, it's a form of compassion and love. And the more we do that, the more it opens up our own hearts for compassion. And like I said, compassion and forgiveness are intertwined. So those are some steps that we can take very easily to help us in our journey towards forgiveness and compassion. Along with intention, we can chant japa and not have an intention of opening our heart or even forgiving others. Um, and then it doesn't come out as easily. It can still happen. It's just not, it's going to progress a lot slower towards that. Just part of being a devotee, we see it's one of the qualities is forgiveness and um, compassion. So in this story, resolves actually quite nicely. So we'll learn that in the next few verses. I don't want to have any spoilers for what's to come. But it, it does resolve itself quite nicely. So what questions do you have for me?
So the question is, you know, it seems easier to forgive other people and not to forgive ourselves, and it seems counteractive to be able to forgive other people and not forgive ourselves. It's actually really hard to forgive ourselves because we are extremely hard on ourselves. We are very much lacking compassion for ourselves. And so it comes to that. Um, there's a couple of exercises that I've learned to do, um, and a lot of them have to do with mirror exercises. So, you know, looking in the mirror and saying, I forgive you for, and listing the crime that you committed against yourself. Right? Like, for instance, I can, I can look in the crime and say, you know, I forgive you for being inattentive while chanting japa yesterday. I forgive you for oversleeping this morning. I forgive you for... Because these are the things that we hold ourselves very hard to ourselves. Um, I'll share with you something very personal. Last Thursday, I overslept extremely like late, right? I'm supposed to be here at like 4.35 to dress the deities. And so the curtains can open at 7. I woke up at 7.15. You know... Crazy thing is I have three alarms and set in the morning because I don't have, I have a hard time getting up in the morning. And all three alarms have been playing since four o'clock in the morning. So slept through it. And I had a hard time letting go of that, like feeling of, of, um, oh my God, how could I have done this? You know, poor Chota Radhakalachanji, poor Gorani Thai. They weren't, you know, they were wondering where I was feeling neglected, you know, and it just, and it felt like the whole day that I couldn't do anything good for myself, you know, just, it almost felt like I was canceling myself out, and that's a big thing right now, right, cancel culture, one person commits one crime, and we cancel them out completely for even the good things that they've done, but we tend to do that to ourselves all the time, and it was interesting because prior to me like learning and looking into forgiveness and learning about forgiving, like how it comes to look at forgiving myself, I would have just felt that bad for myself and not done anything good. But last Thursday, I recognized it. Like, oh, this is the pattern of behavior that I go through, and then I have a period of self-sabotage. And because I recognized it, I was able to kind of cut it, you know, nip it in the bud in some ways and say, like, Okay, how how do I get past this? How do I forgive myself for this? You know, and it's it's just it's understanding that in some ways, you know, Krishna is telling me like, hey, you need to work on getting more sleep. The one that knows me knows that I struggle with sleep a lot, and so you know, the outcome was that I'm no longer dressing on Thursdays. However, it's also Krishna's way of saying, look, here's a small break. Work on getting sleep. Fix this challenge that you're having with yourself. And then let's see what's going on. You know, maybe I can pick up that service again. Maybe I won't. But, you know, in that moment, it felt just so horrible to have that happen, right? And so to even be able to talk about it is a level of forgiveness, and having that vulnerability is a level of forgiveness. So, <laughs> my pleasure. What other questions do you have?
the comment is, is that sometimes our level of insecurity can help us progress. It, it can it can help us turn to Krishna even more and depend on him even more. Is that pretty much the gist of it? Um, and that's true, exactly. But part of that process, you know, we're, we're discussing forgiveness. And, you know, part of that forgiveness is having, ask Krishna to help with that process of forgiveness for yourself. Because until you can truly forgive yourself, you really cannot truly forgive others. So we may say, oh, I forgive you, but it may be a very superficial um, thing. Even if you're saying it to yourself, okay, I forgive that person. But there may be some hurt, resentment still surrounding it until you deal with issues that you're feeling towards yourself around that same interaction. I mean, because we know in my scenario, like, Gurnitai and Shatarada Kalashan, they're not going to hold a grudge. You know, they're going to be very compassionate. And we know from time and time again, Krishna doesn't hold a grudge. I mean, actually, you know, devotees don't hold a grudge. Krishna may, but then when the devotee softens him up, you know, he forgives easily as well. So, and when Krishna holds a grudge, it's really for our own elevation. And it's not truly a grudge. <laughs> Again, it's a form of compassion. Sometimes compassion can look different or not what we expect. Like I was telling other, earlier about a child, like telling a child to go to school and they hate school is still an act of compassion because you're working to help the child learn and grow and you know, develop. So, In the same way, Krishna is always constantly helping us learn, grow, and develop. I'll stop there. Dharantara Srimad Bhagavatam ki.